hey, good morning, everybody, and happy 4th of July weekend. Excited to have you guys out here, and uh, we hope that you guys are able to get some time with your family, have fun, celebrate our country. Hopefully you get to blow some stuff up for America, and that's really, really important. So really glad you guys are with us and excited as we're continuing a series that we, uh, we started last week, if you missed it, uh, that we have been calling Grow. And as you can probably guess, even just from the title of the series, the topic that we're talking through for the next several weeks is actually talking about spiritual growth. And so we're talking about the importance of and the instructions and how to grow spiritually. And I know for some of us, this might seem kind of like a general conversation or a vague kind of conversation. Our hope is to really kind of add some specificity to it to so talk about this idea of spiritual growth. And the way that we're going through this series, we talked about this last week, is uh, as we said, we're journeying through this New Testament book, kind of verse by verse, uh, through the book of Colossians. And the reason we're going through the book of Colossians is because this, this New Testament book is all about spiritual growth. It's all about the importance of and instructions in how to uh, grow spiritually. So that's kind of our heart and our desire. Sarah Beth mentioned as well that out in the cafe, if you go to our Welcome Center, we have those grow journals. That, by the way, just to kind of add a little more clarity, it basically includes a daily Bible reading with some questions attached to it, and then it also includes an opportunity for you to maybe connect with another person, to partner up with somebody, and once a week get together and kind of talk about how you're growing. And our hope is that we can kind of grow together throughout the summer as we journey through this series. Uh, but because we're going through the book of Colossians, that's kind of our approach, I want to encourage to grab your Bibles if you have them, and why don't you just flip with me to Colossians chapter 1. Okay, so we're going to pick up where we left off from last week, Colossians chapter 1. And so if you have your Bibles, if you, if you brought one with you today, go ahead and find the book of Colossians. Um, the book of Colossians is a small book of the Bible. It's kind of hard to find. And so if you need to, go ahead and go to your table of contents, find it. No shame in that whatsoever. Um, also, if you want to, if you did not bring a Bible, we have some available for you in those chairs. And you can turn to page 821 in those black Bibles where we're going to find Colossians. Okay, so you guys can go ahead and do that. Um, or you can use your smartphone, however you want to get to Colossians chapter 1. All right, as you flip there, I'm going to blow up this balloon real quick um, because, you know, that's normal. And so I'm going to do that, and let's see if I can blow it up before you get there, all right? So. All right. You guys in Colossians yet? Did you beat me? I think everyone beat me. Okay. All right, so there's a reason I did that. Um, that's good. Uh, so this, this balloon, the reason I, I did that is because I think, my guess is that one of the things all of us probably have in common in this room is that at one point in our lives, we probably have played this game with the balloon. Now, I don't know what the name of the game is. I don't actually think it's an official game. But basically, it's the game, don't let the balloon hit the ground. Um, how many of you guys have, in some way or another, have played that game? I think just about all of us have played the game, don't let the balloon hit the ground. And basically, the game consists of smacking a balloon up in the air, right? And taking turns doing that with whoever you're playing with the game with to, to not allow it to sort of hit the ground. Now, I have, my wife and I have three little kids at home. We have a little princess. She's six months old or five months old, about to be six months old. And, uh, and so she's, she's beautiful, but she doesn't really do anything right now. Uh, but our boys, they're five and six. And so we play this game only every time there's a balloon around. And we love, we love playing this game to keep the balloon off the ground. And for us, this becomes a full cardiovascular workout. I mean, we are running, we dive for the, for the balloon, we jump off of furniture. It's incredible. We play this game, keep the balloon off the ground, keep smacking it up in the air. Now, the, key, the thing is, my guess is for everyone that's played this game, you know how it works. You do that, but inevitably at some point or other, the balloon is going to hit the ground. And eventually, you're going to get tired of playing the game. And you're going to move on to something else, and the balloon's going to sit on the ground until you decide to play it again. And then you get the balloon out again, you start hitting the balloon, smacking it up 
in the air right now. Why, why do I bring that up? Well, here's why I bring that up. I bring it up because I actually read something really, really fascinating from an author, a guy named J.D. Greer, and he uses this illustration to talk about our spiritual growth, this balloon analogy. Let me just read to you what he says in his very excellent book called Gospel, Recovering the Power that Made Christianity Revolutionary. Here's what he says. I'll put the quote up on the PowerPoint. He says, I want you to think about our relationship with Christ like a balloon. Okay, it's like this balloon. He says, there's two ways that you can keep a balloon afloat. He says, you can fill a balloon with your own breath, which is what I just did, and the only way to keep it up in the air is to continually smack it upward. He says, that's how religion keeps you motivated. It repeatedly hits you. Stop doing this, get busy doing that. All right, so I love what J.D. Greer is saying here. Here's what he says. He says, I want you to think about our spiritual life, our relationship with God a little bit like this balloon, okay? Now, there are two ways that you can cause a balloon to grow, and that you can keep it up. There's two ways you can do that. One way, he says, is religion. He says religion is essentially this. It is that I fill the balloon with my own steam, with my own air, with my own effort, right? My own, my own discipline. And then I have to perpetually smack it to keep it up in the air. Now, inevitably, it's always going to want to come back down again. And so I need to smack it over and smack it again and smack it in there just like the game I had mentioned to you. Now, here's the thing. I think for some of us today, we can kind of relate with that. I know uh, when I think about my, my spiritual life, when I think about my relationship with God, sometimes it feels this way. Sometimes it feels like for me, I have times of high motivation, and sometimes I feel like I have times where I plummet back down. And my natural default, it feels like sometimes, is to go back down. And so what happens is I'll come to church, and I'll hear a sermon, and, and something will happen, and I'll get smacked again. And all of a sudden, I feel motivated. Okay, yeah, I'm going to do it. And then I go back out, and I try. I try to live the Christian life, but inevitably, I come back down again until I come back to church, and I get smacked again. And so, so, th so there's a message. I hear a message on forgiveness. And I think, oh, man, I'm doing such a bad job at that. And I get smacked, and I get motivated. Okay, I've got to go forgive, and I go try to forgive the best I can. But inevitably, what happens is I come back down again, right? Or I come to church, and then I hear, like, I need to read the Bible more. Yeah, I really need to do that. And I get smacked. And maybe for a week, I get real motivated. And I start reading my Bible, but then I start kind of drifting away. I hear about getting, you know, you got to be generous. Yeah, I really need to do that. And I get smacked, and then eventually I come back down again. And I think for some of us, if I was to ask you, what does your spiritual life look like? It might look like that. And if you're a person that would kind of describe your spiritual life that way, you might think that my job as a pastor is to be the one who administrates the smacking, right? You're like, you're the guy that smacks me around all the time. And so I come in here, and, I, and, and you tell me i got to read my Bible. You smack me, and i got to read my Bible. And then the next week, you smack me about generosity. And the next week, you smack me about how I need to forgive people. And for some of you, you just think, man, my job is to smack you and smack you and smack you and smack you. And it's no wonder that so many of you don't like me, right? And I'm just smacking you around all the time. And, and I love what J.D. Greer says. He says there's two ways, though. There's two ways you can keep this balloon afloat. One is by your own steam, by your own effort, and by continual smacking. He says, but there is another way to keep a balloon afloat. And you guys can imagine what that is. Here's what he says in his quote. He finishes. He says, there's another way to keep the balloon afloat. Fill it with helium, he says. And then it floats on its own. No smacking required. And I love, I love what he says. There's two ways you can do this. If, this. if this balloon represents our spirituality, he says there are two ways that you can grow and there are two ways that you can keep it up, right? And what is that? One is religion. He says, in religion, you're going to perpetually be exhausting yourself because you're going to keep hitting this thing and hitting this thing. He says, but there is another way. There is another way that this balloon can soar to altitudes that are unimaginable and that are absolutely impossible through human effort. 
And what is that? He says, you fill it with something different. You have to fill it with, the answer is not to simply smack the balloon harder. The answer is to fill the balloon with something different. There has to be an inward transformation. There has to be an atmosphere change inside of this balloon. And when that happens, the natural result is it is going to soar to unimaginable heights. Okay. Now, here's the question that I want to try to deal with the rest of our time this morning. What is the helium inside of the Christian life that allows us to grow and to soar to unimaginable heights in our relationship with God that are absolutely unattainable by human effort and by human striving that no amount of smacking could accomplish? What is that? Because if what I'm saying, and this is what I am saying, is that religion is, is, is me filling my balloon with my own effort and my own steam and then perpetually smacking it, but it never, it always is going to fall back down. And I'm saying that there is a better way to grow, which is exactly what the Bible is going to tell us. What is the helium that empowers the Christian life? Now, here's what J.D. Greer is going to say in his book. It's the same thing that the Apostle Paul is going to say in the book of Colossians. And it's also the same thing that the New Testament says and that Jesus Christ himself says, and it's this. Here is the helium inside of the Christian life that empowers it and allows us to soar. It is the gospel. It is the gospel. The gospel is to, the balloon, to, is to our spiritual life what helium is to a balloon. It is an inner transformation that fills our lives and allows us to soar to unimaginable heights that are not producible by human effort. Okay, that is the gospel. Now, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says. If you were with us last week, you might remember, we said that the, that the beginning of spiritual growth, the essence of spiritual growth, we said that the very seed of Christianity is the message of the gospel. That that, that is what everything in the Christian life grows on. You cannot have genuine spiritual growth. You cannot have genuine Christianity, the way the Bible describes it, without everything being rooted in and founded in the gospel. The gospel is everything. Everything in the Christian life is motivated by, it grows out of, it stems from the message of the gospel. The fruit of the Christian life comes from the root of the gospel. It all flows from that. And now, here's the thing, because that's all true, because all that's true, what I want to do today for the rest of our time is I just want to try to add clarity around this topic, the topic of the gospel, okay? Because if what I'm saying is that the gospel is the summary of the Christian life, because what I'm saying is the gospel is the essence of the Christian life. Because I'm saying the gospel is what causes spiritual growth in the Christian life. Because of that, and listen, we cannot afford to have ambiguity on this item. And we cannot afford to have misunderstanding on this topic. And so we've got to be clear on the gospel. So this morning, if you're a person that's investigating Jesus today, then listen, I'm just telling you, this is an incredibly important conversation. Because if you're like, I don't know if I believe in God, I'm not even sure what I believe about the whole God thing, I'm trying to figure that out. Then, then if you really want to know what Christianity is about, you've got to get the gospel. You can't have authentic Christianity and authentic spiritual growth without it. So we can't afford to miss this. If you're a person that's been a Christian for five years, for 10 years, for 20 years, for 30, 40 years, you can't afford to miss this. Because what we're going to find today is that the gospel is not the beginning point of our faith. It is the whole thing. It is the whole thing. And so we can't afford to get this wrong. So because of that, what I want to do today is I just want to talk under three headings to try to add clarity to the gospel. And here's those three headings. I'll give them to you up front, and then we'll just walk through them one by one. So if you're a type A personality, this is really for you. Uh, these three headings, number one is the gospel. What is it? Okay, the gospel, what is it? Secondly, the gospel, what isn't it? The gospel, what isn't it? 
And then number three, the gospel, how does it make us grow? How does it make us grow? Practically speaking, how does the gospel make us grow? So we're just going to talk under those three headings. So here's the first one. Let's just get right to it. Number one, the gospel, what is it? What is it? Now, now my guess is for some of you, when you hear me say the gospel is the helium that fills the balloon of our spirituality and allows us to soar to unimaginable heights, you might be thinking, okay, that's, that's interesting. That sounds really cool, but I'm not really sure what the gospel is. What is the gospel? Or maybe you're a person that you've been coming here to the Medina East Campus for a while at Grace Church, and you hear us talk about the gospel often. In fact, if, you, if you've been coming around Grace Church, my guess is you have heard us talk about the gospel probably to, at nauseum. We talk about the gospel all the time. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but our vision statement as a church is to ignite a gospel-centered movement by knowing, living, and giving away the gospel. Those three giant signs out there that say know it, live it, give it away, do you know what the it is? It's not Cheetos, all right? It is the gospel. That's what it is. It's all, that's what we're all about is the gospel. We talk about it. But even though you may have been around here at Grace Church, you still might be unclear what is that? I think I kind of have an idea of what it is. So, so just to level set, just to level set, let me just give us a very simple definition of the gospel. Right? And I'm, this doesn't come from me. This comes from the Apostle Paul. Because what we're going to see in our passage today, in verses 21 to verses 23, is probably the most condensed distillation of the gospel in the entire scripture. The Apostle Paul is going to give us the gospel in two sentences. And so here it is. All right, let's just take a look at it together. Verse 21 to verse 23, here's what he says. Paul says, Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now God, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard. He goes on and explains, okay, so here we have it, very, 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 very simply put, condensed down, distilled down to kind of its irreducible minimum. What is the gospel? The Apostle Paul says it right here. Now, now let me just show you something, that every time the Bible talks about the gospel, uh, there are almost always two elements, not, not almost, there are always two elements that are involved in the gospel. I want you to notice them here. The first one is found in verse 21. Verse 21 says this, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, okay? Anytime the Bible explains the gospel, it always starts here. And what is that talking about? Here's what it's talking about. Our radical sin, right? Part one of the gospel is always this. It is that you and I are radically sinful people, right? Look at what it says again. Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, Right? It, is, it is the story of our sin. Now, here's what I know. I know that we live in a culture today that this idea that we are sinful people is not one that is easily um, heard. Right? So if you, if you went out today, your 4th of July event, and you went up to someone and you said, hey, listen, uh, you're, did you know that you're a sinner and that you're an enemy of God because of your evil behavior? I don't think that would go super well for you. If you, did, if you went up to anyone and you said that, right? that is not a popular message, not by any stretch of the imagination. But... That is always where the gospel starts. It always starts. So, so in other words, here's what the Bible is telling us. The Bible is telling us that the reason that there's evil in this world, that the reason that, that the world is dysfunctional, the reason there are wars, that the reason there is racism, that the reason there is hatred, that the reason that the Steelers are a football team, right? <laughs> it's all because, it's all because 
of sin. It, that, that, that in other words, evil is not a problem that exists outside of us, okay? Evil is a problem that is within every single one of us. In other words, you and I, we are not victims of evil in this world. We are contributors to it. That every single one of us has inside of our heart, alive and well, selfishness, bitterness, envy, deceit. All of those things are alive in us and they cause us to do hurtful things to each other and those things grow and that's, what, that's the problem of evil in the world. And so the Bible says, the Bible says, this is the starting place of the gospel, we are all contributors to the problem that we see in our world today of evil. And because of that, God, God is perfect. God is holy. God is not evil. God is perfect in his love. And so because of that, we have been alienated from him because by sheer definition, perfection and imperfection cannot coexist. And so we've been alienated from God. We have made ourselves enemies of God because of our evil behavior. That is the beginning point of the gospel. Not always popular, but it's always the starting place. But then it goes on to the second part. And the second part is always the good news. This is the good news of the gospel. Take a look at verse 22. He says, but now... But now, those two words are so powerful. But now, he, God, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So here's, here's what it says. The second part of the gospel, the first part is always our radical sin. The second part is God's radical grace. That while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. That, 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 we, don't, that we don't work our way to God. God worked his way to us that he sacrificed his son, Christ, on the cross to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And now we can be reconciled to God, not because of our effort, not because we're good people, not because we get our act together, not because somehow we perform our way to acceptance by God, but sheerly because of the grace of God. Okay, that is the gospel in a nutshell. It is our radical sin and it is God's radical grace. That's a very simple definition. Let me, let me make it even more simple. Uh, here at the Medina East Campus, you may have heard this. We actually put the gospel in a very, very small little phrase. You may have heard us say it. Uh, may have heard us say this several times. But it's basically this: it is that you are more messed up than you think you are. You are more messed up than you think you are. I am more messed up than I think I am. And, and you guys, I think I'm. I think I'm pretty messed up. I really do. My wife thinks I'm really messed up, right? And she's right. But listen, I don't even. I'm just. I'm just telling you. The older I get and the more I grow in my faith, I am, I am just shocked at the depths of pride and insecurity and selfishness that exist inside of me. I'm more messed up even than I think I am. I'm, you're more messed up than you think, right? That's our radical sin. But the gospel says you're more accepted than you could ever imagine. Because of what Christ has done for you, you are more accepted and loved than you could ever possibly. And that is the gospel in a nutshell. Okay, so the gospel, what is it? Well, my hope is that maybe I've added clarity as, as much as I possibly can to, to give a definition. This is what the gospel is. Now, there's several definitions the Bible gives, but they always include those two aspects. It's our radical sin, and it's God's radical grace, and that that will ultimately transform us and cause us to live life radically. It'll, it's the helium in the balloon that causes everything to grow. Now, listen, I know that even as I say that, though, even as I define the gospel, some of you might be thinking, oh, yeah, I know that. I totally know that. I knew that. Got that. Right? We covered that. That's like Christianity 101, man. We totally already got that. In fact, some of you, quite honestly, even as I'm explaining this, you might feel offended. You may feel condescended upon. 
Because you're like, dude, I've heard this before, and you guys talk about this all the time, and I already know this, right? But listen, here's my fear. My fear is that while many of us might know, that we might know these words, we, might, we, may, we may have heard, yeah, you're a sinner and that you need God's grace to save. We might be like, yeah, 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 I know that, I know that, I know that. I don't really, I'm not convinced, I'm not convinced that, that we have fully embraced and internalized that message. Because if, if we have, the ramifications of that are just absolutely, um, they're just unbelievably powerful and it's the helium that allows us to soar just to unimaginable unattainable heights that, that you just can't get to through sheer human efforts, right? And, and the gospel keeps... The Apostle Paul says in, in the New Testament, he says that the gospel, this simple little message, he says, I'm not ashamed of this because it is the power of God for salvation. That's what the Apostle Paul says. When he says it's the power of God, by the way, in the original Greek language, that is the same word we get our English word dynamite from. Now tonight, maybe tomorrow, you guys are going to watch fireworks, you're going to watch things explode. And the Apostle Paul says, just like flash powder is to, to a firework, he's like, that is what the gospel is inside of the life of a Christian, man. It blows up and it begins to radically transform your marriage and your relationships and your finances if you really allow it to internalize inside of you. It's going to move and it's going to grow in powerful ways. So the gospel, what is it? There's a very simple definition. You're more messed up than you think. You're more accepted than you can imagine. It's the story of our radical sin and God's radical grace. Now, here's the second one. The gospel, what isn't it? What isn't it? And this is important because I think that we can, we can gain clarity on what something is, not just by looking at the definition of what it is, but also looking at what it isn't. Okay, so the gospel, what isn't it? Well, what we're about to see in this passage in just a moment is, uh, is basically this, and, and I just want to kind of put it this way. What the gospel isn't, simply put, the gospel is not simply the entry point into the Christian faith. That is not what it is. So, so in other words, Christ, the gospel is not just like the beginning of Christianity and then you move on to other things. That is not what the gospel is. I'll put it a couple other ways. Tim Keller, an author, pastor, he said it so well. He said the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian faith. He said the gospel is the A to Z. It is the whole thing. Uh, J.D. Greer, guy I just quoted earlier, he said it this way. He says, the gospel is not the diving board into the pool of Christianity. He says, the gospel is the whole pool. It is everything. That is to say this, the entire Christian life, the growth that God wants for us, doesn't just begin in the gospel. It is a perpetual staying within, a deepening, a more, a, 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 a firmer awareness and a deeper understanding of the gospel. That is the entirety of the Christian life. Let me show you how the Apostle Paul puts it. So let's look at our passage again. Look again at verse 21. We'll just re recover this again. He says, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Okay, that's radical sin. You and I are more messed up than we think we are. Verse 22, but now... God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. God's radical grace, more accepted than you could ever imagine in Christ. But then I want you to notice verse 23. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope that is held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven in which I, Paul, have become a servant. Okay, here's what I want you to do. If you guys have your Bibles in front of you there and you have a pen, I want you to circle that little word in verse 23, if. 
Okay, if, underline it, if. If you didn't bring a pen with you or whatever, use your mascara if you want to. And if, you, if you're a dude and you have mascara, then that's cool too. So just go ahead and <laughs> highlight that if. Okay, so if. Why, why is that important? Okay, I, I want you to understand what Paul is saying. This is so important because the Apostle Paul just said, um, he said, listen, you are more sinful than you can imagine. You are alienated from God because of your sinful behavior. But now you're accepted because of Christ's sacrifice for you and you are reconciled to God, then he says, if, if, that is a conditional word. He says, listen, forgiveness and reconciliation to God is all yours if, if what, Paul? If what? He says, if you continue in your faith, look at it again, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and don't move from the hope that's held out in the gospel. Now, now, some of your translations, you notice this one, it says, if you continue in your faith. Some of you might have different translations, and it might say this. It says, if you remain in your faith. That's actually a better translation, uh, because if you, if you take that word, continue or remain, and you take it back to the original language in the Greek, what it literally means is, stay put. Stay put. So the Apostle Paul says, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God is all available to you if what? If what? He says, if you stay in the gospel. In other words, he's like, don't get off of this. Don't get off of the gospel and get on to something else. Don't get off the program of the gospel and get on to some other program. Now, why in the world would the Apostle Paul feel the need to say that? Here's why. I think because the Apostle Paul knows that with the Colossian church and with you and I, that we have a natural proclivity to drift away from the gospel and to make Christianity about all kinds of other things that are not the gospel, not the gospel. Drift into all kinds of other things. Let me kind of explain what I mean. Go back to my balloon for a minute. So I don't know how it got all the way over here. It, it drifted. But what the Apostle Paul is saying, he's like, listen, what I, what I desire for you, spiritual growth comes out of a, out of a gospel-driven relationship. That's what it comes out of. But you see, what happens is we have a natural proclivity sometimes to drift away from that into all kinds of other things. So for example, for some of us, I think if I was to ask you, tell me a little bit about, about your spiritual life. Tell me about your religious activity. Tell me about what, what it is that motivates you spiritually. For some of us, I would say our spirituality, one of the ways that we drift is we can drift into morally driven religion, okay? Not a gospel-driven relationship, but morally driven religion. Like, what, are you, what are you talking about? Well, let me kind of explain this. I believe, and I don't have any st- statistics to back this up, but I believe that by and large, many, many, many people in America who would say that they are Christians would define their Christianity this way. It is morally driven religion. Here's what I mean. All your spiritual activities, so this balloon, all your spiritual activities, all of your religious involvement, all of your, your, your church connections and the things that you do uh, spiritually are motivated by and are filled by a sense of moral obligation. It's right and it's wrong. And so, for example, for, so, for some, if I asked you, if I said, so tell me, what is it that motivates your religious, your religious behavior? So, so the, obviously, you know, forgiveness. So why do you forgive people? And you might tell me, well, the reason I forgive people, what motivates that is because it's the right thing to do. It's right. And I know it's the right thing to do, and so I'm going to do that. And that is what motivates all of your religious activity and all of your religious behavior. Some of you, if I asked you, why do you go to church? Why do you attend church? 
even on the, the Sunday of 4th of July, which Jesus loves you more for that, by the way. If I ask you, why do you attend church? Some of you might, might tell me, well, the reason I attend church is because it's the right thing to do. My parents did it. My grandparents did it. That's what morally upstanding people do. And so morally upstanding people, they pay their taxes. They, 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 they love their kids. They, they mow their grass on time. They keep the weeds out of their yard. They don't like cats, right? And then, and, and they go to church. And they go to church. That's what morally upstanding people do. And I am a morally upstanding person. I'm a good citizen. I'm a relatively good person. And that's why I go to church. For, for, for some, if I asked you, I said, so are you a Christian? You said, yeah, I'm a Christian. I said, okay, can you explain that to me a little bit? Some of you might say, well, well honestly, I'm not really sure if I believe all of what the Bible says. I'm not, not real positive. I'm, I'm, I'm whole keen on this idea that I'm a sinner and, and stuff like that. I don't know if Jesus Christ is truly the son of God who rose from the dead. Because that, come on, let's just face it. That kind of sounds like a fable, right? But I do believe that Jesus was a great moral teacher. And I believe that the tenets of Christianity, that you love your neighbor as yourself, that you love your enemies, that you care for other people, I believe that those things are a great moral foundation to build a country on and to build a family on. And so for that reason, I believe in Jesus. I believe he's a great moral teacher that should be emulated and should be followed. And, and, and I would just say, if that's the case, you're dealing with something that it's, it's morally driven religion. If I asked you, how are you accepted by God? Some of you might say, well, the way I'm accepted by God is that I do good things. And so one day I'm going to stand before God, and God's going to say, why should I let you into heaven? And I'm going to say, here's all the good things that I did, and here's all the bad things that I did, and God is going to weigh them out on a cosmic scale, and the good is going to outweigh the bad, and God's going to say, okay, you're a good person, relatively speaking, and so you can enter into eternity. And you would tell me, good people go to heaven, and bad people go to hell. And I would say that many, many people today in our country, they would describe and define their Christianity that way. Let me just say that if that summarizes your spiritual, basically your spiritual relationship with, with Jesus, you're not dealing with the gospel. That's not the gospel. That is morally driven religion. Because what does the gospel say? Does the gospel say good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell? No, here's what the gospel says. The gospel says there is no such thing as a good person. Nobody is good. That's what the gospel says. The gospel says there is no one righteous, not one aside from the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel says that even our good works, the good things that we do, are like filthy rags to God because the good things that we do are tainted with selfishness and sinful motives and all types of other weird dysfunctional things. And so the Bible, the gospel says, listen, no, no, you're not accepted by the moral things that you do. That's not how you're accepted. There is no one who is good, the gospel tells us. And so what happens is we drift away from the gospel. We drift, we drift into morally driv driven religion. Here's another one. One of the other ones we can, we can drift into is guilt-driven religion. And basically, it's like morally-driven religion. The only difference is everything that you do spiritually is motivated by an inner sense of guilt. Why do you go to church? Why do you do religious things? Why do you read your Bible? Well, it's because I, I perpetually feel like God is always disappointed with me. And so I feel like I have to do these things to try to earn God's favor. That God loves me less or more, all, all contingent upon my moral performance. And so it's guilt-driven religion. Let me just say that if that summarizes your spiritual walk with God, that is not the gospel. Because the gospel doesn't say your moral performance earns you any more acceptance with God. 
The, the gospel tells us, listen, you're more accepted than you can imagine on the basis of what Christ has done for us. How about this one? We can drift into performance-driven religion. What's performance-driven religion? I think this one is one that especially um, is, can be dangerous for those who grew up in the church. I know, I know that not everyone kind of grew up going to church, but some of us, we kind of grew up in the church. And so you know what I'm talking about when I say salty, this, this singing psalm book or whatever it is. You, you know all the veggie tales by name, right? You used to freshen your breath with testaments, right? And you know what that is. Some of you kind of grew up in the church. And I think one of the dangers if you grew up in the church is you get really good at playing the game. You know how to outperform other people. And it's about who knows the most about the Bible and who says the most profound thing at life group and who is the most involved at different things within church. And, and what we can do is we can start drifting into a performance-based religion that I'm accepted by God and I'm accepted by others based on my performance, based on competition, right? And, and we can drift in. And that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. And, and so the apostle Paul says, listen, you need to stay in the gospel. Don't drift away from the gospel. Don't make your relationship with God about religion. Because here's the thing. The gospel is not religion. It's not. There are two things that religion always has in common, no matter what motivates it. And here they are. Number one is, number one is, you are always accepted by God based on your performance in one way or another. It's all about your steam and your effort. And your acceptance by God is based on how well you do, how well you perform, how good you are, how much you're winning. And that's how religion works. And here's the second thing all religion has in common. All religion has this in common. That it is only as powerful and only as strong as you are. It's only as strong as you can, you can muster up the energy to smack, right? It's only as strong as your sense of morality. It's only as strong as your sense of guilt. It's only as strong as your sense of competition. And because of that, because of that, it is unsustainable. And you will smack it and smack it and smack it, but inevitably it will always come back down. It doesn't work. But the gospel is different. So here's the third question then. Practically speaking, the third one is this. The gospel, the third heading we're talking about, the gospel, how does it make me grow? So, so if what we're saying is the gospel is the helium in the balloon that allows us to soar to unimaginable heights that are unattainable by human effort, okay, then how does that work, practically speaking? It's a great question. All right, so let me put it this way. I don't know if you guys know this or not, and, and if you didn't, it's a good thing to know, but did you know that every single time the New Testament gives us a commandment, a behavioral commandment, and I mean every single time, it always connects that commandment to the power of the gospel. Did you know that? So, so let me just give you a couple examples. The Bible gives a whole, the New Testament gives a whole bunch of uh, behavioral commandments. It says that we should love our enemies. That's what the Bible says. Do you know that? The Bible says we should forgive from our heart. Um, the Bible says, and, and by the way, not just from our heart, but we should forgive endlessly. That's what the Bible says. Uh, the Bible says that we should bear each other's burdens. The Bible says that we should be generous people for those of us who follow Jesus. But do you know why the Bible says we should be those things? Every behavioral commandment that's given in the Bible is always connected to the power of the gospel. So for example, Jesus says we should love our enemies. But do you know why Jesus says we should love our enemies? Why the New Testament says we should love our enemies? It doesn't say love your enemies because it's the right thing to do. It's not what it says. It's never what the Bible says. It doesn't say, love your enemies, because if you don't, God's going to be really ticked with you. It's not what it says. That's guilt, right? 
It doesn't say, love your enemies, because if you do, God will love you more. It's not what it says. Here's what the Bible says. It says we should love our enemies. Why? Because at one time, you and I were enemies of God. We were estranged in our sinful nature and our sinful behavior. God is perfect and we are imperfect. And so we were alienated from God. We were enemies of God. And yet, while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves his enemies. And he invites his enemies to be part of his family. And the Bible says once you begin to do that math, I call it gospel math. Once you begin doing the gospel math, gospel math is basically the gospel says this, therefore I should live like this. I was an enemy of God. I, I was separated from God. I offended God and he loved me and he sacrificed for me. Well, when that starts to work inside of my heart, do you know what the result is? I start to love my enemies. Not, not out of a sense of obligation, not out of just sheerly sweating it out and trying harder, but because of an inner transforming work that's alive inside of me. It starts to pour itself out in every fa faucet of my life. Here's another one. You know the Bible says that we should forgive endlessly? You guys remember this passage where Peter comes up to Jesus? He's like, hey, Jesus, man, how many times should we forgive people? You think like seven times? And Peter totally thought he was just being boss right there. He's like, I'm awesome. Jesus is going to be so impressed. I'm like, forgive seven times. You guys remember what Jesus said to Peter? He's like, Peter, if you follow me, we don't forgive seven times. We forgive 70 times seven, which was a way of Jesus saying, we don't ever stop forgiving Peter, ever. In which all the disciples were like, what? That's humanly impossible. And Jesus is like, right. And what is the motivation forgiveness, for forgiveness that God gives? Is it because it's the right thing to do? Does he say forgive because it's the right thing to do? No. Does Jesus say forgive because if you don't, God's going to get real ticked off at you and he's going to hit you with a lightning bolt. Is that what he says? No. Why do we forgive? He says because you have been forgiven by God. And the Bible explains that you and I, we owed a debt that we could never pay, an eternal debt to God. And when Jesus Christ came and he paid that debt for us and he died in our place, God was expressing to us eternal forgiveness. And once you begin to realize that and you allow that forgiveness to penetrate and to work into your life, the result is you will soar. You will soar to unimaginable heights of forgiveness that are humanly impossible some of you guys might remember, I, I'll never forget this. Back in 2007, there was a story that shocked the world that came out of Pennsylvania. Some of you might remember this. It was a story of a gunman who went into an Amish uh, school setting, to a schoolroom, opened fire in the classroom. Terrible, terrible, horrific thing. Now, several of the Amish students that were there that day lost their lives, and at the end of the day, the gunman turned the gun on himself and took his own life. It's tragic and terrible. But what shocked the world was not so much the shooting itself, but it was the forgiveness that came out of that Amish community. You guys remember this? Story after story that was written by journalists about what these Amish families did. These Amish families who had just lost their own children. We were told that they went to the funeral of the shooter to show sympathy and support for the family. They, they, they sent their condolences. They said, we forgive the man who shot us and we don't hold it against your family, not for one second. This Amish community took an offering and gave the money to the widow of the man who shot their children. And there were stories and articles that were written. And, and in fact, there's books that are written. I think they're making a movie about this. Why? Because it is unearthly forgiveness. 
How do you forget? In fact, there's a group of psychologists who look at that scenario and say the only logical explanation for that type of forgiveness is that the Amish are mentally unstable. <laughs> they're like, they're crazy. That's the only, they're crazy because why would you ever forgive like that? But if you ask those Amish people, which many people did, why, how did you forgive like that? You know what they said? Every time, you know what they said? They said this, they said, listen, we are not denying that this is a horrific, terrible, hurtful thing. We are not for a moment minimizing that. But they said this, the reason that we forgive is because Jesus Christ has forgiven us. They said, listen, we know it's our sin that put God's son on the cross. And he forgave us for killing his son. So who are we to withhold forgiveness from anyone else? You see what just happened there? You see what just happened? They are soaring to unimaginable heights in their forgiveness that are not possible by human effort. What does it work in them? Oh, there's a helium inside of them. You see, it's the gospel. It works inside of them, and it's pulsating, and it's generating a lifestyle of radical love that's not possible through human effort. Because I, I wish that I could express to you, I don't have words clear enough to express to you the importance of this conversation. It might sound like semantics to you, but it is not. If you do not have a gospel-driven relationship, you cannot have true, authentic spiritual growth. You will get exhausted. Christianity will crush you. It will crush you if you don't have the gospel. Every time in the New Testament that, that the New Testament authors give us a commandment, they're always doing gospel math. The gospel means this, so that looks like this. You know, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he says, be generous. Christians, be generous. And do you know why Paul says to be generous? He doesn't say, because there's other people in need. That's not what he says. He says, because Jesus Christ became poor for your sake, that you might become rich. And so be more like Christ. Let the gospel work inside of you. And the result is that as the gospel is at work within you, it's going to fill you and it's going to allow you to soar. All right, one more story, and then, and then I'm finished. I just, I just really want try to try to make this as practical as I can of how the gospel makes it. I, I really struggled with whether or not I would share this story because it's, it's a little bit vulnerable, but the more I thought about it, I actually shared it with our staff a while ago, and um, a few of them found it really helpful. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll, share, it. I'll share it here too. So um, some of you guys might know, Medina Campus started in December of 2012, so it was about three, three and a half years ago. And that season, when we first started the Medina East Campus, was by far one of the most exhilarating, one of the most energizing, and at the exact same time, one of the most exhausting seasons of my life and the lives of many of you who are part of that. Some of you might remember that was a crazy, fun, exciting time when we first started. But I, I remember this one week real vividly because it was, it was, I think it was the week before we opened, if I remember right. And what we were doing was we were, we were doing as much as we can um, just without, we wanted to save money, so we were doing as much as we, we could with volunteers to prepare the building. So we were painting walls, we were ripping out carpet, and all kinds, it was awesome to watch the church in motion to do that. And I remember it was, it was a crazy push week, and so I had, I think it was like three or four days, where it was go, 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 and I hadn't seen my kids, I was gone all day, and it was just one of those weeks. I know many of you guys who work have had those weeks before, but I remember this one day, I think it was the fourth day of the week or something, and um, it was a crazy busy day, and then that night I had a meeting, and then I, I planned on coming back to the church and painting, because there was still more painting to be done. So I went through the whole day, it was crazy, and then I went to this meeting, and this meeting, I don't know how to put this well, it, went re it was a really negative meeting, all right? And what I mean is the person that wanted to meet with me, 
I don't really remember all the details, but they were frustrated about something, and it had to do with me and the church, and they wanted to talk with me about it, and so I sat down with them. And you guys know how there's like constructive criticism, and that's a good thing, right? It's a good thing to, 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 to encounter. This was like deconstructive criticism, right? This person just lambasted me. I mean, they went on for the first half an hour just to sit there and, and just rail on me about what I'm doing wrong and what I need to be doing better and how I've hurt them and all this kind of stuff. And I just remember as they were, as they were talking, I, I just remember in my, in my heart and in my mind thinking to myself, I mean, because, you know, I was tired. And you guys know when you're tired, you don't want to say anything. It's just not a good time. And I just remember they were, they were just saying all this, these really, really hurtful things. And I was just sitting there. I just remember thinking to myself, I was like, don't say anything. Don't say anything. Like, I'm just talking myself off the ledge. I'm like, dude, just don't say anything. Just take it. Just take it. And I remember thinking, they're, they're probably hurt, you know, hurting people, hurt people. I'm trying to remind myself all these things. And so they're, they're going off on me, and they're saying all this stuff. And I'm like, okay. So at the end, I, I, didn't, say, I didn't say anything back. I, I, I really bit my tongue a couple times. But then afterwards, I remember, um, I, said, I said to them, I said, okay. I said, well, I think I see what you're saying. You're saying this, this, and this. And I think there's some legitimacy to what you're saying, but I also think I tried to try to navigate. I ended up landing in a great place. Uh, the person actually apologized, like, I'm sorry I went off. And I'm like, it's okay, it's no big deal. You know, we all, we all do that from time to time. And I just pretended like it didn't bother me. Well, I got in my car, and I came back to the church. And I remember I was in the old auditorium. It's not where the power kids meet. I was painting a wall, and I was by myself. It's like midnight. And I'm tired. I'm painting this wall. And I'm halfway praying and halfway having a shadow boxing session with the person I just met with. And I know, I know none of you guys do that, right? But I was just thinking, oh, I should have said this, and I could have said that. Well, who do they think, man, what do they think they are? And I was just going through this whole thing. I was mad and upset and grumpy, painting the wall. I'm pretty sure the brush strokes on that part of the wall are permanently etched in the wall. And I remember this, I remember, this was so pivotal for me. I remember sitting in there painting this wall. And I remember thinking, why is it why is it that whenever someone's got a problem with me, or they got a problem with whatever, that they can come and they can say whatever they want to me? They can just say whatever. They can say whatever hurtful thing, whatever painful. And I, and I said, and why is it that I just have to always take it? Why do I just have to take it? I can't give them a piece of my mind. I got plenty of things I'd like to say back, but I can't say them because it wouldn't be the right thing to do, right? And I'm like, so why is it that they get to say whatever they want and I don't ever get to say anything? And I remember I was just kind of having this, this uh, temper tantrum, you know, with God painting this wall. And I was like, I'm the only one painting this wall. I'm the only one here, and I'm justifying myself. And then I remember this thought. Oh, I remember this so vividly because it was so powerful. I remember thinking to myself, why do I always have to take it? I always have to take it. And I thought, when is somebody going to take it from me? And it occurred to me. In that very instance, I realized what I had just said, and the gospel flooded into my heart. And I remembered, somebody did take it from me. See, I was, I was the one who offended Jesus. I was the one who hurt God. I was the one. And Jesus Christ bore it for me. He took it for me. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and all of a sudden, I, I'm telling you, I soared to an unimaginable height. Only be, not because of my own effort, but because the gospel was at work in my heart. And you wonder the craziest thing about that story, and I, you, some of you aren't even going to believe this, but it's absolutely true. I don't even remember who I sat down with that night. I don't even remember. 
And part of it might have, might have been because I had so many meetings like that during that time. I don't know. But, but I don't even remember. I don't even I don't remember what we talked about. And I'm not, I'm not saying it always works that way. But, man, the gospel was alive in my heart. You guys, the gospel is what motivates the Christian life. It's, it's, what, it's the power that's at work within us. Where are you going to find the power to love your spouse the way that God wants you to love your spouse in the midst of the marital issue you're facing right now? Where are you going to find that power? Is that going to come from you? Is that going to come from a sense of morality? It's the right thing to do. Is that going to come from a guilt-driven religion? Is that going to come from a competition? No, listen, that is unsustainable, and it's not going to last. That is a minimum power, right? Where are you going to get the power? Where are you going to find the power to forgive that person, that family member, that friend who has deeply injured you? And I don't just mean like, oh, they, you know, they, 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 they hurt me in a minor way. I mean the major stuff. Where are you going to find the power to do that? Is that going to come from within you? It can't. The gospel is what elevates us. It's the helium in the Christian balloon in which everything rises and we fly to. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, I just want to say thank you so much for the reality of the gospel. It's just, it is the power of God. And, and the truth is, the gospel isn't the starting place. It's, it's the whole faith. It's the whole Christian faith. So God, I pray you'd help us to remain in this message, that we wouldn't drift into making Christianity about anything else. This is what it is. This is the substance of our faith. It is that you died for us while we were still yet sinners. And God, as simple as that sounds, if that, if that message is not alive and active inside of our hearts, we cannot experience true healthy growth in the way you desire. Here's the truth, God. The truth is, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing we can do to make you love us anymore. Not a thing we can do to make you love us more. And there's not a thing we can do to make you love us less. Our acceptance and love is completely contingent on what you've done for us, Jesus. It's only when we understand that that we can grow. God, I want to pray for the person in the room today, the person who has not embraced the gospel, investigating you. God, maybe for the first time ever, the gospel is making sense in a way it's never made sense before. It's clicking. The coin has dropped. If that's the case, then Father, I pray you give that person boldness and courage to surrender their life to the gospel, to, to, to turn their life to you, to say, man, I'm a sinner, God, and I need you. You're my savior, and I'm accepted, not because of the things I've done, but because of the work that you've done. And Lord, would you today, even right now, at this very moment, would you allow someone who's investigating you just to embrace that? Father, I want to pray for, for the person in this room who's been following you for years. And the good news has become old news. And the gospel, maybe for some, seems like old hat. And if that's the case, God, I pray that you would reawaken inside of us a passion for the gospel. Because the truth is, when the good news becomes old news, it is a clear indication that we have misunderstood the power of the gospel. And so, God, I pray that you would allow the gospel to work inside of our hearts. Allow it to transform us. Father, allow it, to, allow it to, to penetrate so deeply into our inner being that it's in our bones that forgiveness flows out of us, that, that love for our enemies flows out of us, not, not out of a moral obligation, not because it's the right thing to do, not because of religious adherence, but because of what you have done for us. So God, transform us and make us like you. 
And I pray that today, for some people, that today would be their Independence Day, their spiritual Independence Day, where they surrender their life to you. I want to ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.